You can be seated. <laughs> Praise the Lord. That was awesome. Uh, hear their baptism, see the baptisms, hear the testimonies. Zach, you're, you're awesome. I have to say, this is probably the first time in the history of Christendom that anybody has said antinomial Pharisee and crap in their baptismal <laughs> testimony uh, together. And I mean, this is just a special moment. You're, you're awesome. You really are, Zach. That, that was fantastic. Um, all right. So beyond that, um, we, uh, we get to get back in the book of Ephesians this morning. I hope you're excited about that. So uh, I got a lot of ground to cover and uh, not that much time to cover it in. So I uh, hope you packed a lunch today. But, uh, um, you know, I'm kind of dr- jumping out of the frying pan into the fire when it comes to tough topics. We just finished this series on, uh, on justice. And uh, today, because this is just where we left off in the book of Ephesians, we're going to deal with the topic of slavery. And then next week, we're going to get into the spiritual warfare section of Ephesians. And I hope you'll be here for that. I mean, when you hear spiritual warfare, you think, oh, that kind of sounds kind of weird. You know, usually people can, can go to one of two extremes with that. You know, sometimes people are, you know, you, you maybe have met people that like they see a demon behind every bush. They're just kind of weird about it. Um, Other people, though, you know, it's like the devil doesn't even exist. The Bible teaches neither one of those extremes, but the Bible does teach us that we're in a fight. We're in a battle for our lives and our souls. But the good news is that Jesus has already won the victory. That's a lot of what we see in the book of Ephesians. And we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. But we need to learn how to apply that in our lives. And that's what we're going to do uh, in, in this series. But uh, like I said today, we're going to uh, deal with the, the issue of slavery because that's what's in the text. You know, probably one of the uh, benefits of just preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible is it forces you to deal with things that you wouldn't otherwise uh, deal with. Because I don't think I'm going to wake up one day and say, hey, I think I want to preach on slavery uh, this Sunday. Now, you may say, though, you may be thinking, you know, how is this relevant to me today? Now, in, in answering this question, I'm not going to say, well, I'm here to make the Bible relevant to you because I think that's a stupid phrase. Uh, the Bible is the most relevant book that's ever been written. Sometimes we need to show its relevance. But, uh, you know, how could this apply to us today? Well, one way is uh, if you read uh, atheists, non-believers who are in opposition to Christianity, One of the most common arguments that you'll find over the last few years, Sam Harris has popularized this, but other people have said the same kind of thing, is, well, the Bible teaches that uh, God's pro-slavery. The Bible's in support of slavery, and we know slavery's immoral, so the Bible, you can't trust it, and you can't believe in a God. So we're gonna, as we come to the end today, we're gonna address that argument. I mean, when you think about, you know, just the history of it in our nation, the history of it, even with, uh, you know, religions and denominations, Uh, supporting it. Uh, When you think about the fact that there is still slavery in the world today, particularly when you think about human trafficking, which in in my opinion, I don't see any way you can argue that that's not a form of slavery. It, It is still in existence on some level today. But then the ultimate question that we want to get to this morning that we should always ask when we study the Bible is, what is this going to teach us about God and who he is and how he works in the world? 
and how he works in our lives. So that's where we're going to get to. Now, we're going to be in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. But before we get there, I need to spend a, a few minutes on the context. Context is always important when you're studying the Bible. Uh, you know, the, the context of the book, context in the Bible, the historical context. But it's particularly important in understanding the passage that we're going to look at uh, today. Because, uh, you know, the question is always going to be, as we read this, when we think uh, about it in our 21st century American mindset, is why didn't Paul just say, this is horrible, this is awful, this needs to immediately be done away with? I mean, that, that's, that's a logical and, and legitimate question. But remember, when you study the Bible, it was written in, in a particular time, in a particular place, to, in, in a particular group of people. There's a context there. So if we're going to accurately read out the God-intended meaning of any text, we kind of have to cross a bridge back into the ancient world and kind of put our place, ourselves in the place of the original hearers. And then we have to cross that bridge back over into our world to apply those truths in our world, in our, in our lives today. So think about the context of Ephesians. The first three chapters of Ephesians are doctrinal, talking about how we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, who he is, what he's done for us, how he's reconciled us to the Father and reconciled us together as one body, Jews and Gentiles in his church. But then the last three chapters are a practical application of how we live out what Jesus has done for us. And, and, and the sentence that has uh, guided uh, our our study, and of course, you know, February was the last time we were here because went some different directions during COVID and all that kind of thing. But the sentence that has guided our study of the second half of the book of Ephesians based on chapter four, verse one, is that we live out what Jesus expects of us by living out of what Jesus has done for us. Now, just kind of file that away because we're going to come back to it at the end, and it's extremely important. Also, this particular section of Ephesians that we're in actually starts in chapter 5, verse 22, and goes through chapter 6, verse 9. It's often called the household section of Ephesians because in 5, 22 through 33, you have husbands and wives, and 6, 1 through 4, and we looked at this on Mother's Day and Father's Day last year, you have parents and children, and then in 5 through 9, chapter 6, you have masters and slaves, and slaves were considered a part of the household in Roman society uh, at that time. So that's kind of the context of the book of Ephesians. But second, if we're going to understand this, we need to understand a little bit about the history of slavery. So I want to read a little bit to you from a book uh, written by Dr. Thomas Sowell, who is a, a famous African-American economist and writer. The name of the book is Black Rednecks and White Liberals, and it's a, uh, a compilation of essays that he's written, and the one that I'm going to read from is called The Real History of Slavery. And he says this, slavery was an, evil, it was an evil of greater scope and magnitude than most people imagine. And as a result, its place in history is radically different from the way it is usually portrayed. Mention slavery and immediately the image that arises is that of Africans and their descendants enslaved by Europeans and their descendants in the southern United States. Now, if you're my generation, you think about slavery, you probably think roots. 
right? And we should think that, but what he's saying is there's a whole lot more to it than that. That's a part of it. It was heinous. It was awful. It was evil, but that's not the whole story. So he goes on to say, uh, no other historic horror is so narrowly construed. No one thinks of war, famine, or decimating epidemics in such localized terms. These are afflictions that have uh, been suffered by the entire human race all over the planet, and so was slavery. Slavery has been in existence uh, just about everywhere in human society for most of human history. He goes on to say that it takes no more research than a trip to almost any public library or college library to show the incredibly lopsided coverage of slavery in the United States as compared to the meager writings on the even larger number of Africans enslaved in the Islamic countries of the Middle East and North Africa, not to mention the vast numbers of Europeans also enslaved in centuries past in the Islamic world and within Europe itself. At least a million Europeans were enslaved by North African pirates alone from 1500 to 1800. During the Middle Ages, Slavs were so widely used as slaves that the very word slave derived from the word Slav. China in centuries past has been described as one of the largest and most comprehensive markets for the exchange of human beings in the world. Slavery was also common in India, where it has been estimated there were more slaves there than in the entire Western Hemisphere. In some of the cities of Southeast Asia, slaves were a majority of the population. It was also an established institution in our hemisphere before Columbus ever arrived here. For most of its long history, which includes most of the history of the human race, Slavery was largely not the enslavement of racially different people for the simple reason that only in recent centuries has either the technology or the wealth existed to go to another continent to get slaves and transport them in mass across an ocean. People were enslaved because they were vulnerable, not because of how they looked. Before the modern era, by and large, Europeans enslaved other Europeans, Asians enslaved other Asians, African ensla Africans enslaved other Africans, and so on and so forth. Slavery was not based on race, much less theories about race. Only relatively late in history did enslavement across racial lines occur on such a scale as to promote an ideology of racism that outlasted the institution of slavery itself, which is what we've experienced in our country. To make racism the driving force behind slavery is to make a historically recent factor the cause of an institution which originated thousands of years earlier. Now, there's a lot there. Let me boil it down just a couple of statements. What he's saying is, Slavery has been a problem in almost all the world, in almost all of human history. And we have to understand that to understand the context. What he's also saying, and he goes more in depth in this elsewhere, is that slavery was not originally racially motivated. Slavery became racially motivated as a justification when people began to push back and say that it was wrong. Now, Obviously, he's saying, and we say, that slavery was a, is a horrible evil, 
And that racism is a horrible evil. It's just to understand what the Bible's teaching here, got to understand some of the background. So that's kind of some historical background. Third, we need to look at the nature of slavery in the Roman Empire at the time that Paul is writing this letter to the church at Ephesus. And so Clinton Arnold says of this, he says, uh, slavery in the Roman Empire, one, racial factors played no role. Two, many slaves could reasonably expect to be emancipated during their lifetime. Three, many slaves worked in a variety of specialized and responsible positions. Four, slaves many slaves received education and training in specialist skills. Five, freed slaves often became Roman citizens and developed a client relationship to their former masters. But he goes on to say, quote, in spite of these substantive differences between Roman era slavery and New World slavery, it is important not to construe this ancient form as more humane or as a morally justifiable economic system. Although we can point to some features that make it appear better than slavery in the antebellum south of the United States, it still involved the coercive ownership of another person, which is basically what slavery is, which I would hope we would all say is immoral and evil. He says, Bradley summarizes the situation well. The bare record of fact shows that Roman slaves like those in the Americas were bought and sold like animals, were punished indiscriminately and violated sexually. They were compelled to labor as their masters dictated. They were allowed no legal existence and they were goaded into compliance through intimidation. They were the ultimate victims of exploitation. So, Understand, just to be historically accurate, pretty much a worldwide phenomenon. It looked somewhat different in the Roman Empire when Paul it was writing uh, than if, you know, what we know about of the transatlantic slave trade's history in America. But it was still awful, horrible, evil, in no way justifiable, even though in some ways, maybe some slaves at least, were treated somewhat better. And so that all leads to the last thing I want to say about the context, and then we'll look at, at this text. Once again, it raises the question, why would Paul just not say, this is evil, stop it? Is that not a reasonable question? But what we have to understand here is as Clinton Arnold says, uh, that it is in this context that the Apostle Paul cast a vision for how slaves and slave owners should live out their Christian lives within the constraints of this prevailing social and economic system. In other words, the actual context of, in which Paul is writing is he's not writing as a lawyer filing a legal brief trying to get the laws changed. He's not writing as a philosopher, uh, writing a moral treatise on the nature of slavery. He is writing as a church planner, as a pastor to a group of people in a church that he started, and he's giving them pastoral instruction as Christians for how they were to conduct themselves while they were living under these laws and in, these circum in this circumstance that they had no standing to change. Thomas Sowell put it this way. 
He said moral principles may be timeless, which they are. If something is really true, it's true for all people, in all circumstances, in all times, and in all places. Moral principles may be timeless, but moral choices can be made only among the options actually available at particular times and places. And what I'm saying is, in their particular time and place and circumstance, their options were very limited. Why? They lived in an empire. They didn't get to vote. Now, we should be able to relate to this. If we took a poll in this room today, I would think overwhelmingly we would say, let's change the laws and make abortion illegal. We would change the laws and say that marriage has to be between a man and a woman. But we just can't take a poll in this room today and get that done even though, they live, even though we live in a representative democracy. What were they supposed to do living under what essentially amounted to a dictatorship? Even beyond that, Paul, it was not his purpose to attack political social institutions. His purpose was to proclaim the gospel, make disciples, plant churches. Out of that, as the human heart changed, things would change. But if he had tried to directly attack the Roman Empire on any kind of social political issue, Christianity would have gotten shut down before it ever started. Even beyond that, think about it in this way. There are instructions in the New Testament in, in multiple places. Uh, Sermon on the Mount, in Paul's letters, in, in, in Peter's, in, in 1 Peter, for how we as Christians are to live while we're being persecuted. Does that mean that God was pro-persecution? No, he's just saying, this is a reality. You're going to experience this if you stand for me. This is what you do if it's happening. If it's happening, this is how you live when persecution is going on. And so what Paul is saying here, he's not saying that God is pro-slavery. He's saying, in your particular circumstance, in this situation, this is a reality of life. You, as a Christian, under the lordship of Christ, this is how you function. Now, that brings us to Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Now, when you've heard this preached before, I'm guessing there's a really good chance that the way it's been preached is, okay, this applies to us today in our work, and, and, and that's how it's been preached. And so I, I want to make that application, but I, I want to start because th this is how we interpret Scripture with, okay, what was Paul actually saying to the people he was writing it to? And what are the truths that we extrapolate from that and how they apply to us today? Does that make sense? We don't get to read into the Bible what we want it to say. We don't get to read 21st century America into it. We read out of it what God is saying because the Bible means what God meant it to mean and it means what the original authors wrote and we can't give it some new meaning. It's the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It means what it's always meant. The Bible doesn't mean what we think it means. It doesn't mean what we want it to mean. It means what God meant it to mean. And that's why Paul told us to rightly divide the word of truth. That's why you actually have to study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who, who needs not to be uh, ashamed. And so 
I want us to start with kind of just putting ourselves in the place of, if we're in first century Ephesus and we're a slave or a slave owner, this is what Paul's saying to us, and then uh, we'll apply it to us today. So, so here's what he says. He says, bond servants, uh, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Now, when you read this and just take it at face value, what you find is there, is, there are three commands in these verses. One, given to slaves. Two, given to the masters. And then within um, the, the, the command to slaves, there's six characteristics of the attitude of obedience that God is looking for here that he also says in verse nine, apply to uh, the slaveholders. So the command that he gives to the slaves here as Christians under the lordship of Christ is he told them to obey their masters with a Christ honoring attitude. I mean, that's what the text is. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ. That's what he said in uh, verse five. Now, as we've talked about earlier in Ephesians, if uh, someone who is an authority over you is telling you to do something that goes against God, that goes against scripture, you can choose to appeal to a higher authority and, and disobey that authority and obey God. But in this case, they would have to experience the consequences of that. But generally what he's saying here, if, if you're in the position of being a slave as a Christian, obey your master with a Christ-honoring attitude. And, and, and the attitude that he lays out here is respect and fear. It's having pure motives, doing it to the Lord. It's, he says, obey as they would obey Jesus. He says to serve, not to impress people, but to serve Jesus. He tells them to do the will of God from the heart. And he says, ultimately, that they can look for their reward from the Lord. Because obviously, there wasn't a whole lot rewarding about slavery, but, he, but what he's saying is, is if you obey God with the, from the, with the right heart, God's going to reward that. Now, here I think is the principle as it applies to us. He's saying that if we're a Christian living under the lordship of Christ, no matter what our circumstance is, no matter how bad our circumstance is, we're still called to obey and honor the Lord. He's saying that no matter what our circumstance is, we can live out what Jesus expects of us by living out of what Jesus has done for us. And think about how this applies uh, to us at work. I mean, if he's saying this to slaves who were in an oppressive situation in what is really an ungodly situation that they weren't getting paid for, what does it say to us and how we live under the lordship of Christ in our jobs 
even if we don't like our job. He says to do what our boss says as long as it's not going against God, to respect our boss, to have the right motives, to, to serve, not be a man, please don't just work if somebody's watching you, but to work as unto the Lord, do the will of God from the heart, knowing that God is gonna reward us. Listen, Christians ought to be the best employees wherever they work. Uh, God, and I, God created us to work. He didn't create us to be lazy. You know, a lot of what this country was built on is what's known as the Protestant work ethic that comes from Scripture. It came through uh, the Protestant Reformation, and it's something that we need to recover. We talked about this twice earlier in the book of Ephesians, the Latin phrase, quorum Deo, to live our lives in the face of God, to live our lives in the presence of God. And what that means is, is that do all that we do in the name of Jesus Christ for the glory of God, including our work. And when, we, when that becomes our purpose, it can transform even the most menial task into something that is meaningful now and for eternity. To do all that we do, including our work, to the glory of God. Then in verse nine, he speaks to the masters. And, um, you know, once again, raise the question, why didn't you just say, let them go? But that would have been very difficult and very complicated under Roman law. So he tells them here to do two things. He says, treat their slaves like the slaves have been commanded to relate to them. Clinton Arnold writes of this, it is probably best to see Paul commending the various virtuous attitudes he has exhorted the Christian slaves to display as having equal applicability in the lives of believing slave owners. This would include having a positive attitude and goodwill toward their slaves, wholeheartedly committing themselves to doing the will of God, and living under the recognition that they too are slaves of an ultimate master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he also says to stop threatening them. You know, don't mistreat them. Don't be harsh towards them. So how would this apply today? If you own a business, if you're a manager, you're a supervisor, do your work as unto the Lord. Treat your employees in a Christ-like, in a Christ-honoring way. Do everything you can to be a blessing to them. Don't be harsh uh, towards them. Uh, look to the Lord, not the bottom line. Have integrity. Realize, if we're a Christian, every part of our life is under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's quorum Deo in the face of God. We, we can't, uh, under the Lordship of Christ, be one person in church on Sunday and say, oh, that's religious stuff, and then choose to live our lives a different way through the rest of the week and say, oh, that's just business. And I've heard Christians say that exact thing before. It's all under the lordship of Jesus Christ for his honor and glory. So if, if we want to apply it to us, I think that's how it applies. But before we finish, and we're going to go a little long today because I think I need to circle around to this. You know, I posed four questions at the beginning kind of related to slavery and how they relate to our world today. And I don't have time to address all four of them, but I want to address two of them before we close. So the first one is, are atheists right when they say that the Bible is pro-slavery? I mean, you read a text like this, you read things in the Old Testament, and uh, you, know, you ask, why didn't Paul just say, stop this? 
does this mean the Bible is pro-slavery? I'm going to argue no. Let me give you three reasons why. First of all, if you want to go back to the Old Testament, passages in the Old Testament are regulative of something that was already going on. Remember that history. They're not eternally prescriptive. It's not a part of the moral law of God. It was a part of the civil law of Israel. And even there, we need to make a distinction. To me, there's only one passage in the Bible that's difficult to explain when it comes to slavery, and that's in Leviticus chapter 25. But in the Old Testament law, there's a couple of different aspects of slavery. There was uh, Israelites being enslaved by Israelites. There were Israelites enslaving foreigners. When we talk about Israelites enslaving Israelites, it wasn't really slavery when you read it closely. It was more like an indentured servitude kind of thing. When could an Israelite uh, uh, come under the, under the ownership, which really isn't even the right word, come under the authority in this way of uh, another Israelite? Well, one would be if that person had committed theft, if they'd stolen from that person, but they didn't have the means to restore it, they didn't do prison. There's a big emphasis on restitution in the Old Testament law. If they couldn't pay the restitution, they went to work it off. Or when someone became a debtor to someone or just didn't have the money to live, they could go and work for someone, in a sense, to pay off their debt. Now, it was very highly regulated. They couldn't mistreat them. It could only last for uh, six years. And, you know, they couldn't kidnap another person and force them into slavery. The Old Testament actually prescribes the death penalty for that, which following that one biblical principle would have completely eradicated the transatlantic slave trade and slavery in the Annabelle south. Now, when it comes to enslaving foreigners, I think that's the one difficult passage because it does talk about, you know, them being able to buy them, uh, hold them as property. Uh, my understanding of this, though, it would be is uh, in that day and time, usually when there was a war and one people conquered another, one of two things happened. You either eradicated them, you destroyed them, or you enslaved them. Um, I think this is a function of that. In part, it's also a function of the fact that these people were God's enemies and Israel as God's chosen people, part of what they were appointed to do, and this isn't normative throughout history, they were appointed to get rid of some of God's enemies. So that's why you see, and once again, atheist question this as well, understandably, you know, why were they to eradicate people in the land of Canaan or why were they allowed to enslave some of these people? It's because while they were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, God God gave these people space to repent. They continued to rebel against him. They continued uh, to function as idolaters. So God was using his means, uh, people as a means of judgment upon them. And that would be my understanding of why this was allowed in this case. When it comes to the New Testament, I don't see anywhere in the New Testament where slavery is actually approved of including the text we read, it's just dealing with an established reality that he couldn't, that, that the writers couldn't directly attack at that moment. But I believe that what's taught laid the groundwork for its eventual demise. Here's what I mean. Look at a couple other passages in the New Testament. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7, 20 through 23, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can be made free, Rather use it. He's saying, if you're a slave and you can get set free, don't stay in slavery. Take your freedom. 
But he says, for he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. In other words, what he's saying is, is you can be free on the outside and enslaved on the inside. Or you can be enslaved on the outside and free on the inside. Jesus came to set you free on the inside. And if you can be set free on the outside too, awesome. Take advantage of it. But if you can't, Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, this is how you live. Under the lordship of Christ, living out the freedom of what Christ has done for you. But think about the book of Philemon. A lot of you know the story of Philemon. Uh, I preached through it uh, several years ago here at, at, at True Life. And so there's a runaway slave by the name of Onesimus who in the providence of God runs into Paul while he's uh, in, in prison. And uh, Paul leads him to Christ. And Philemon uh, was his owner, and Paul had also led him to Christ. And Paul says in the book of Philemon, starting in verse 8, that, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase some of this for time's sake, that, that Paul, Paul's saying, um, you know, I'm an apostle. I'm, I'm Paul. I can tell you what to do. I led you to Christ. You ought to listen to me. I can tell you what to do, but I don't want to do it that way. I want to appeal to your heart. I want you to do the right thing voluntarily, not out of coercion. And so he says in verse 10, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I've got begotten on my chains, who was once unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntarily. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose that you might receive him forever. No longer is a slave, but listen to this, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. You may say, why did Paul uh, send him back? Well, Paul sent him back because Onesimus had actually broken the law and done something that was wrong by running away. He had probably stolen from him in the process, and we're all personally responsible for what we do, even if somebody else is doing something wrong. So Paul says, Onesimus, you go back, and you need to make this right, but I'm going to ask Philemon to accept you back. See, because he could have punished him, but Paul says, receive him back, not anymore as a slave, but now as your brother in Christ. And so here's what I'm saying. Paul couldn't directly attack slavery and eradicate it immediately. But the gospel seeds that he, he planted in, in the transform, transformation of hearts and the love of Christ and seeing people as people of value and worth and dignity because they're made in the image of God planted the seeds that over time led to slavery being not completely eliminated but greatly eradicated over the face of the earth. And see, here's the, if, I mean, if somebody wants to, you know, use, I don't believe Bible, don't believe in God because it's pro-slavery, this would be ultimately my argument. It was not atheist who brought about the abolishment of slavery. In fact, to even make this argument, atheists have to borrow Christian categories because if you're an atheist, 
you don't have any basis for claiming objective morality that says some things are absolutely always evil or some things are absolutely always right. You don't have any objective basis for saying that every person has a soul and has unique value and dignity and worth simply because of being made in the image of God. If you believe everybody is the product of chance and chaos and random evolutionary processes. So to even make the argument as an atheist, you have to assume some Christian categories. But even beyond that, it wasn't non-Christians. It wasn't atheists that brought about the abolishment of the slave trade and slavery as we've known it historically. It was committed, Bible-believing Christians. Now, I'm not saying there weren't other factors going on in the world, you know, the rise of armies where you know, some countries could protect their people from being enslaved. But I'm saying this was the driving force. Now, this is why I started where I did with the history of it, okay? So I know we're late today, but give me 10 more minutes just to bring all this home and I think it'll be worthwhile, okay? So, you know, I read this stuff from Thomas Sowell before and he asked the question of why something that was so established, what we read before, and pervasive in the world, was ended. Now, isn't that a reasonable question? If, this, if slavery was so common for so long, it's obviously gonna take a lot to get it to stop. So how did it stop? He writes this. He says, the anti-slavery ideology behind this process began to develop in 18th century Britain at a time when the British Empire led the world in slave trading and when the economy of most of its overseas colonies in the Western Hemisphere depended on slaves. Here again, the baffling present-day disregard of an international saga of strife full of individual dramas as well as historic consequences seems explicable only in terms of today's ideological agendas. While slavery was common to all civilizations as well as to peoples considered uncivilized, only one civilization developed a moral revulsion against it very late in its history, Western civilization. Today, it seems so obvious that as Abraham Lincoln said, if slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. But the hard fact is that for thousands of years, slavery was simply not an issue, even among the great religious thinkers or moral philosophers of civilizations around the world. We may wonder why it took 18 centuries after the Sermon on the Mount for Christians to develop an anti-slavery movement, but a more profound question is why not even the leading moralists in other civilizations rejected slavery at all? There is no evidence that slavery came under serious attack in any part of the world before the 18th century when it came under attack in Europe. Themselves, the leading slave traders of the 18th century, Europeans nevertheless became in the 18th century the destroyers of slavery around the world. Moreover, within Western civilization, the principal impetus for the abolition of slavery came first from very conservative religious activists. You know who the first ones were that started in this direction? It was the Quakers. People who would today be called the quote, religious right. Clearly, this story is not politically correct in today's terms. Hence, it is ignored as if it never happened. 
Here's what happened. I mean, the Quakers started the ball rolling, but there were a group of, uh, of men, I won't try to name them all, that got together in the late 1700s in Great Britain. And uh, the one who's the most well-known is William Wilberforce. Now, like I say, there were others of man by the name of Granville Scar uh, Sharp, who is such a Greek scholar that there's actually a rule of Greek uh, grammar named the Granville Sharp rule of Greek grammar. He was one of the guys who wrote against this. But William Wilberforce became a Christian. He was a member of parliament and dedicated his life to eradicating Ill social ills within the British Empire, primarily slavery. And this came out of Christian conscience and Christian conviction. And understand, this is a historical fact. When this happened, uh, Great Britain did this at tremendous sacrifice to themselves and their own economy because, uh, I mean, it cost them economically to not have the slave trade, but they also invested money in their Navy patrolling the world to try to stamp out the slave trade in other countries. I mean, it's one of the greatest financial sacrifices that a nation has ever made, and it came out of Christian biblical conviction. In 1807, William Wilberforce was able to get a law passed in Parliament uh, ending the slave trade. A few days before he died in 1833, Great Britain passed a law outlawing slavery in general in its nation and it's all of its colonies. And you say, where did this come from? If you read their writings, it came out of things we talked about in the message about racism in the last series. The fact that Genesis 1 tells us we're all created in the image of of God. Acts 17, 26 tells us there's only one race because we're of one blood. The golden rule of do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. The reconciliation that's brought about through the cross of Christ. Ephesians 2, the parable of the good Samaritan that we're to love our neighbors ourselves, and everyone is our neighbor. The fact that Revelation 7 tells us that in heaven there's going to be people of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And once you grasp this, you can never be a racist. Once you grasp this, you can never be a proponent of slavery. And once we begin to grasp this, we see that part of the role of the church in being salt and being light and being a shining city on a hill and, and living out the kingdom of God is to make a difference in the world wherever there's human suffering, sacrificing, laying down our lives to be used by Christ and leading people to him and helping those that are hurting in other ways around the world. Despite the narrative that exists in our world today. When you study history, because this is only one example, God has used the church time and time again in making a difference in human suffering in this world. That's what we're called to do. Last thing, quickly. The last question I ask is, what does this say to us about who God is and what does this mean to our lives? said we live out of what Jesus expects of us by living out of what Jesus has done for us. We could adapt this in this particular text to say that no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, even slavery, we can live out what Jesus expects of us by living out of what Jesus has done for us. Listen, in Christ, we don't have to be a slave to our circumstances. He told these people in Ephesus, even though you're in this circumstance, you can obey God uh, through, through Jesus. You can honor God in the way that you live your life, even in this circumstance. And he says the same thing to us today. That's real freedom. 
A lot of people think freedom is us being able to do whatever we want to do. Real freedom is having the power to do what we know that we ought to do. Listen, you can be free on the outside and in bondage on the inside. Jesus came to set the captives free. One of the great themes of the Bible is sin and slaves. Jesus sets us free. Think about the Exodus. They were in slavery to Pharaoh, who's a picture of Satan. What did God do? God sent a deliverer named Moses to set his people free. You see, Jesus is the greater Moses who came and he died on the cross and he defeated sin and hell and death and the grave to set us free so we can live in that freedom today. Yes, we're blessed in the United States to live in freedom on the outside, but he calls us to, enables us and empowers us to live in freedom on the inside. And listen, if we're in bondage on the inside and if enough of people are that way, eventually we'll give up our freedom on the outside because we'll give it up to the government to try to have the government take care of things that we're supposed to take care of, but we can't when we're in bondage. John 8, 31, Jesus said this. He says, if you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And the Jews that he was speaking to said, we're Abraham's descendants that have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? What a dumb statement. They were in, under Roman rule. They had been in bondage multiple times throughout the history of their lives. But see, this is part of how Satan works. Satan enslaves us to sin, and his deception makes us think we're free. That's where they were. Jesus said this, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free... You will be free indeed. Listen, spiritually, the Bible teaches us, Romans 6, we're gonna be somebody's slave. We're either gonna be a slave to sin or we're gonna be a slave of Christ. If we're a slave of Christ, he's gonna set us free now and forever. Whose slave are you? Are you living in freedom? Are you living in freedom I mean, part of, part of the testimonies that they shared were, you know, we've made a profession of faith, but there wasn't freedom in our lives. Jesus came to set us free from the bondage of sin, set us free to live in that freedom. Are you walking in his freedom today? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? We're gonna close with prayer. And we'll give you a chance to Respond. Listen, if you're a Christian, do people at your job see that you're a Christian? You one person at church and another person there? Is the way you do your work, does it honor God? Is it under the Lordship of Christ? Maybe some of you need to make some changes there. Maybe some of you say, I'm, I'm a Christian. You know, there's areas in my life, honestly, when I'm in where I'm in bondage. I just encourage you to cry out to Jesus and ask him to set you free today. Maybe you need to talk to somebody else. Maybe there's a secret that's keeping you in bondage. You need to confess to somebody else. Maybe there's some of you that you're not living in spiritual freedom because you need to take the first step of obedience like they talked about in the baptism and get your baptism on the right side of your salvation. I'd encourage you to do that if that's where you are. But maybe there's some of you, you really don't have a relationship with Christ. I mean, maybe you have some head knowledge, but you're not really 
you've not really been set free by him. Listen, we're, we've all sinned. And sin's not just, hey, I've messed up. Sin is I have rebelled against a holy God. We deserve to go to hell. But he still loves us. Jesus died for us. He rose from the dead. And if we'll come to the place of being genuinely sorrowful, repentant over our sins, of wanting to change, of surrendering our lives to Christ and calling on his name and asking him to forgive us, asking him to set us free, of confessing him as our Lord, of trusting him. He will forgive us and set us free and make us new. I just encourage you and invite you, if that's where you are, just right now to call on the name of the Lord, to ask him to forgive you, to ask Jesus to come in your life and take control of you. If you got questions about that, come see me or Pastor Philip be in the lobby or talk to somebody you know or uh, you can text TLC Decision at 94,000 if you're online or if you're here or if you're online, you can uh, respond to somebody in the, in the comment section or the, the chat section. We have a host and we'd love to talk through your questions with you. If you need to get baptized, just let us know. You can do that on that same text form as well. You can talk to us. But let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the bondage breaker. God, I pray that by your grace and your power that you would set us free. Lord, help us to walk in the freedom of your truth. God, help us to trust you. Lord, I pray in all of our lives, Lord, right now that you would intervene and do a work in us by your spirit and that we would respond to you in the ways that we need to and that uh, we would just live out of and live out the freedom you've given us. God, transform us from the inside out. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, you need to talk, pray, we'll be here. Thank you so much for coming. If you're a guest, we're really glad you're here. Hope you'll come back. You guys have a great day. God bless you.